Happy Thursday, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest space history movie ever made, I think, uh, Ron Howard's 1995 feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And this time I'll get it right, I'm the only other host, and I'm Chris Henry of the EA Aviation Museum. And today we're very fortunate to have a guest with us, uh, someone who uh, works hard to preserve uh, these these important pieces of American history, and world history for that matter, and uh, someone I'm, I'm honored to call a friend here. We have Dr. Jennifer Lavasser here with us from the National Air and Space Museum, one of the curators there, and I even got her name right today, so I'm really excited. I'm on a roll. <laughs> Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on today. And thank you for having me. This is, um, I think, like many space historians or sort of space people interested in space in general. This is one of my favorite movies, and I'm happy to get a chance to talk about it with you guys. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a fun movie, and, it, you know, when you watch, especially this particular minute that we're in, there's, there's so much stuff there that you just want to have uh, carefully curated with, uh, with nice little <laughs> cards sitting next to it. So we have a, we have a pretty good minute here, although uh, I, I would imagine that it would be difficult trying to uh, present some of the things that are shown here in the uh, Vehicle Assembly Building. For sure. I mean, just to kind of, I mean, one of the things we talk about at the museum that's a real challenge for us that we have had to let go of in some ways is uh, telling the story of scale. I think this shot that we're starting with here of the VAB um, is a perfect example of that. You really don't understand how large this building is until you're standing next to it or you're standing somewhere on the Kennedy Space Center property because it is just so darn huge. Um, and that really gives you then a sense of when you, if you ever get a chance to go on a tour where this is included in the tour, and I thankfully have gotten that chance, is when you get close to the building and then you see the massive doors that you're going to see sort of as the minute rolls on, um, you can really imagine how this, how big the Saturn V was. And I've seen some some of the Saturn Vs. I've seen two of the three that are still around. Um, but to really get a sense of the scale of what it was we were undertaking and how big the rocket is, you have to be there. You have to see it in person. And we can't do that in our building. So it makes it tricky, but we find ways to um, to do it with models and things like that. So And pieces that we do have. One of the clever things that I thought that you did at uh, at the Air and Space Museum is there is a I don't know if it's still there but uh, years ago you had a a single F1 engine <laughs> and it was uh, plugged in next to a, a kind of a hall of mirrors and it gave you the idea of what the uh, the five uh, the, the the five engine setup was and yeah. just sticking your head inside kind of gave you the scale of holy yep. smokes that's a big ship. <laughs> It is. It's one of my, I, I always comment on it when I give tours, if I happen to go through that area. It's one of the things I like to feature on my tours, actually, because it it was a, some, I, I want to say it was an exhibit designer's brilliant idea back in 1975 or somewhere in there, which was to be able to kind of play that trick is to put basically um, three three sides of a cube together and fill it with one and a quarter F1 engines and so you have one full size full complete F1 engine and then you have a quarter slice of one and by putting that in the corner of the mirrors you create this visual effect that if you look at it at the right angle it looks like five and it is absolutely amazing and one of the first things we started talking about when we um, 
we're getting ready to redesign that gallery. Um, we're getting ready to redesign the entire building. And so people will start to see the effect of that soon uh, on the National Mall is how can we take that and make it better? I mean, it's already cool. So how can we take it and make it better? And I don't want to spoil too much, um, but let's just say it's definitely going to be better. It's going to have, you're going to be able to even feel closer to what it was like to be there for a launch of a Saturn V. And so um, I think we're just, we're kind of amping up the things that we know we already do well. And that's one of them. I know it's a lot of people's favorite thing to come see. Yeah, it's, it's the darn biggest kaleidoscope I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way of putting it, a kaleidoscope. Yeah, it's, it's exactly it. I remember my first time uh, walking into the Air and Space Museum in D.C., and I mean, that is one of the things that's just stuck with me. When I think of my first trip there was that, I think that uh, engine, like the X-1 and the Wright Flyer, were like the things that just were ingrained in my head that I saw while I was there. It was, it was fascinating. Yeah, the engines are huge. Engines are one way that we can, you know, kind of show people what it looks like, and they're still... Um, it, it's it, it's great to be able to tell a story of propulsion. Um, we do it really well, I think, out at the Udvar-Hazy Center, which is out near Dulles Airport, where we can show you different engine technologies in a different context. It's more of, you know, sort of a linear pathway, although that development story is not necessarily linear. We can show you how each of those sort of connects to each other and how the the history evolved from, say, what's on a, what's on a v, uh, V2 rocket all the way up through a space shuttle main engine which is down in another gallery we have downtown now. Um, but we can, you know, kind of relate that through objects. And it's easy to do it when you're standing in front of it. Um, most of us don't get that time to stand in front of objects to talk about them. So we have to, you know, put artifact labels out and hope that, you know, we're giving people enough information. And that's part of the, you know, the downside of being in a museum is we can put things out on the floor and we can write a label to tell you about it. But sometimes the stories of the people who built it are some of the best. That's what makes a movie like this really valuable is in the end, it actually, you know, tells the, and from what I've heard from Fred Hayes personally, tells the story very accurately. The Smithsonian Institution is, is the official repository of all, of uh, all spacecraft, the spacecraft that, uh, you know, that, that show up in your museum here in, in, you know, on the mall down in, uh, in Chantilly, Virginia as well. But you're also responsible for, all American spacecraft, whether they're uh, displayed in London, like Apollo 10 is, or uh, Apollo 7 is in Dallas, yep. uh, how is what kind of um, uh, quality assurance or or <laughs> stewardship do you have when you're when you're scattering the uh, or not scattering but displaying these on, on such Ugh. quite a wide uh, arena? That's a great question and something, um, you know, we've grappled with over the years and have dealt with in different ways. And so the policy of the museum and really the relationship with, that has been built with NASA over the years and that relationship, formal relationship with NASA goes back um, almost all the way to the beginning. Uh, the first agreement between NASA and the museum was signed in somewhere around the late 60s and making sure that the history would be preserved, though they had been pre preparing for it all along to kind of prepare uh, to preserve their own history. Uh, the museum really, even though it wasn't built yet, the museum, the National Air and Space Museum was around and uh, the planning went into place on how to deal with it. And so up and through um, somewhere in the 90s or so, um, when the space shuttle program really became um, the main story, the main space story of the time and the artifacts be started to become available, 
up to that point, the museum was the official sort of location for most of these things. Though you'd see things at other um, visitor centers for for NASA all over the country, really, or museums around the world. So we, at that point, had taken everything, almost everything from NASA and put it on display somewhere. And so all the command modules from all of the missions, Mercury through Apollo and uh, Apollo Soyuz and Skylab, all of those had gone on loan in various places. And we still retain um, title, so actual official title to them and ownership resides with us, um, including the three Saturn Vs that are at Kennedy uh, Johnson Space Center and at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville. We still um, work with each of those locations to make sure that they're maintaining proper environmental conditions, that they're protecting them from being touched. Um, these things are very fragile. Even though they're made of metal, there are lots of materials that are attached to them that are fragile. The heat shields are particularly fragile. And so we have to make sure they're displaying them properly and protecting them. And so if you go to visit one of them, you'll notice plexiglass around them in different ways, um, really just to make sure that, unfortunately, we can't let you get up really, really close to them because they're so fragile. At the, uh, like I mentioned, the shuttle program is when things began to change. And so we do not have title to any space shuttle other than Discovery, which is the one that we show. Um, it's just too complicated. The, we've learned over the years it's too hard um, to kind of keep an eye on how everyone is protecting every single one of these objects. And so um, so the, where, the locations where they are now actually have title to them, and they're part of the, those museums' collections. And so we can keep a little distance from that, but we're going to continue on with the Saturn Vs and all of the historical vehicles, And uh, as far as I know. <laughs> and we just make site visits. That's one of our jobs. We go and visit these things, make sure everything's okay. If you visit JSC and you see the Saturn V there, we were involved in getting the building constructed around that Saturn V to protect it. And so it's one of the things we've done is worked in partnership with each location to make sure that they're caring for them correctly. It's nice to see all three of the Saturn Vs, you know, so well cared for and protected now. They're all indoors, yep. you know, they're and, and they look fantastic. They've all had either great preservation uh, or restoration in some cases, but I've got a chance to be, I, was, I, I just scratched uh, the third of, of off the list. I needed to get to that last one, and I just did it uh, recently uh, awesome. and got to the, the um, U.S., uh, the, the the one in Huntsville, and uh, it was really neat, by the way, I geeked out because the elevator doors open, and I walked out, and it actually started playing, like, the theme to Apollo 13 in the building, <laughs> and I was just, I, I literally got chills, like, it was just too cool to be wow. hearing that music in that building with that Saturn V, you're looking at those big yeah. engines, it was, it was pretty surreal, like, I yeah. wish I would have recorded it had I known that was going to happen. <laughs> It is. It is a more, I'm, all of them are are fantastic sites. I I do like the presentation at at Huntsville. Just the uh, the giant window running along the entire length of it, so you can see it as you pull up into the parking lot and you see this uh, this brilliantly lit uh, Apollo Saturn V sideways. <laughs> it's quite quite a, a roadside appeal. I think is the real estate term. But uh, well, and it's a replica. And I know that the, the, it's. I'm going to speak about a replica here. Of course, they have an original Saturn V, but then they've also mounted vertically a replica, full-scale Saturn V. Um, and that was interesting to see. I mean, that really kind of put in perspective of just how massive that thing was. Um, as far as I know, I think it's full-scale. I mean, but it's 
it, it's like a 35 story building sitting in their parking lot in Huntsville. <laughs> it's pretty yeah, amazing. I've never been, but it's, I, I understand it's pretty impressive to see. The only way we've been able to do anything close to that is the one piece of equipment we, um, of a Saturn V, other than that F1 engine that we really have sort of displayed for people is we have an instrument unit. And if you look at second 18, sort of in that neighborhood of this particular minute of the movie, you can see, um, and I can't remember the exact location of the instrument unit, but I think it's the black band on the part that's at the left, the piece that they're lifting up. And that's the control section for the rocket. And we have one of those mounted up on like 12 foot tall posts at the Udvarhazy Center. And so you can actually walk underneath it. And I wish we did something better to really explain like what part of the vehicle that was, what part of the rocket, what it did. Um, but that's not really what we do out there. We don't give things as much context as we would like, but, um, that's, you know, an ongoing battle we, we have here in downtown DC. Any of you who've ever come will know that, you know, we have a Skylab on display and getting Skylab in the building in the 1970s would, would never work today. And that's part of our problem with showing things of sort of more modern, um, vintage is getting things in and out of downtown DC or even out at Dulles airport is really challenging. Um, so it's, it's particularly hard to consider how we would display newer things because there's lots of power lines in the way there are street permits, there are, you know, policing, all the other things that go into place, um, just to make something like that happen for us. It's incredibly complicated. Um, we've talked a lot about how would we ever get Skylab out of the building or how would we ever get this in the building or that out of the building. And by the time we start thinking about it, it, the costs of doing it are so astronomical. We just kind of have to, um, kind of take things as they are and work with them because making changes is very expensive. I was thinking if you ever get a, a, a first stage of a Falcon 9, maybe you just have them landed on the mall and then <laughs> cart it over. <laughs> It'd be much, much easier. Yeah, that would be quite the feat, though, but uh, I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah. Um, but a beautiful, uh, this this green, I mean, it, this is all the, the particular scene we're looking at here uh, in the VAB. Uh, very nice use of green screen. Uh, at, yeah. uh, and uh, you could especially I, I love the overhead shot where we're looking up at the 30 uh, 325 ton crane bringing that s4b overhead it's just it really gets the magnificence of the scale yeah yeah and i think that's a j2 engine inside there we have a, a few of those in our collection and um you know it's getting the up close and personal view of the the sort of construction of the exterior of the rocket that i always find interesting that sort of corrugated look to the backdrop as you come down and see the crowd gathering in front of it the group of people gathering in front of it it's just it's really amazing it's one of the things we learned through the preservation of the saturn 5 down at houston is um, you know, you think of these kinds of materials as very durable. I was talking to someone today about the durability of metals and things like that and how, you know, we, we get concerned about issues of humidity. Um, humidity was one of the reasons we had so many, so many problems with considering the locations of the Saturn fives as they are. I mean, they're all around the Gulf coast and the Atlantic coast. The humidity levels in those regions are very high. Um, even by DC standards, they're very high. And when we went to look inside the Saturn V's as they were prior to being put inside buildings, the humidity had just really allowed the metals to degrade. They were worn away in places. In fact, one of our curators was able to put his fist all the way through one of the holes um, oh, wow. inside the Saturn V. And so, 
you know, these things were um, meant to do incredible things. They were built to be very sturdy, but when you think, and it's true of most any of the space um, artifacts that we have in our collection, when you think about them 50 and sometimes 60 years later, they're incredibly fragile and we have to be very careful with them. And so that was one of the reasons to get those Saturn V's indoors is um, the humidity levels are just so incredibly high and over the course of time really wore everything down. And I know you face that even in your inside the museum. Uh, one of the one of the remarkable things I remember about uh, your the gallery of flight when uh, Gemini Four used to be uh, displayed at, right there as you walk in in the entranceway. Um, I know that Ed White's suit was degrading mightily because of uh, the UV radiation coming in through the uh, ceiling panels, yeah. and that required an entire refit of of the type of plexiglass that you were using to surround the ship. And uh, eventually I think, I think the uh, Ed White's uh, helmet and stuff was removed just simply to preserve it as it was decaying from day to day sunshine. Yeah. And we've done that with quite a few artifacts and there was a project, I think it was in the 1990s to replace all of that glass up in the ceiling. Um, We will probably, I believe it's part of the window, uh, the renovation project we're getting ready to do is to replace all those windows again. Um, you know, we've now relocated Gemini 4 into a climate-controlled case nearby. It's against a wall. Yeah, the, the suit materials are, there's a really great um, study that we've done. Um, we did with the help of a Save America's Treasures grant back in the early 2000s and studied the materials of the spacesuits, and that's part of what will go into um, you know, putting Neil Armstrong's suit back on display this next year in 2019 for the 50th anniversary is we're studying it to understand exactly what kind of environmental conditions will maintain it. Because like I said about the rockets, even it's true with the spacesuits and virtually everything else, those things were meant for space for a very short period of time. They were meant to do their job. They weren't meant to last for 50, 100, 500 years, and the mission of the museum is to make them available for generations to come. And so our job is really challenging in that we have to kind of make conditions that will, you know, suit those objects as they continue to age. Um, Rubbers are particularly problematic in that suit. You mentioned the Ed White suit, but many of the Gemini era suits in general um, have significant problems because... Um, air and things like if you even think of a newspaper if you leave a newspaper out in your driveway for a few days it becomes yellowed well that's the kind of effect that you would get with some materials under uv lights um, in a museum and so we have to take that into account when we create cases that's why things are often behind cases i know it's not fun for the public to come and see lots of things in boxes Um, but if we don't do that and we don't protect them they won't be there for you know, my kids and my grandkids and your grandkids and so on and so on. So we have to think ahead far more in advance than we would perhaps our visitors would like us. I always thought that uh, that's the thing that you guys really have always just set the standard for was um, you don't just preserve something. You guys are like actually actively learning new methods of preserving or why something breaks down. And then that information kind of it gets fed out to other museums, whether it's aviation or whatever. But, um, you know, going to something like Mutual Concerns was was so valuable for our museum team because of that, that that flow of information of, hey, you know what, we, we didn't just preserve this and park it in a hangar. We actually did a study to find out, you know, what parts would need what type of attention or restoration or preservation. And 
um, it, it was just very inspiring to know yeah. that there's people working that hard uh, to, I, I don't know if it's the right term, but active preservation and research is uh, more, I think, what the Smithsonian and the Air and Space Museum does. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. there's a, um, we have a staff of conservators who are really the most active in their own community of conservators. Now, conservators obviously can be people who work in like forest conservation. We're talking about conservation in terms of museum pieces. And so you get a lot of people in the conservation world who are focused on art. And there are smaller segments that are focused on three dimensional objects and different kinds of materials including metals and plastics and things like that plastics being a major sort of new and you know kind of focus of a lot of conservators um, since plastics come from in essence oil um, how do those degrade over time what are the conditions you know things like space food are a particular problem with that in that they're encased in plastic um, how do we how do we grapple with putting those on display when those plastics degrade um, they delaminate they do all kinds of other things and so we as curators at the museum are in conversation with our conservators who then in turn reach out to their communities of um, conservators to really understand how others are working on issues of conservation just in different contexts and so thankfully we all work within these circles in the museum world where we can tap into the research of people who are working on something completely different so we might tap into somebody's research at the victorian albert museum because it had researched some kind of plastic that they had worked on and how might we integrate that knowledge into how we work on you know space food or something else and so the good thing is is the museum communities really overlap with each other and we have conferences that we go to where we can discuss these things and learn from each other and there are publications that are, get put out that that discuss those kinds of topics too so it's um it's a really interesting community to be part of because you never really know what ne what's the next thing you're going to be who's the next person you'll talk to and what are they going to talk to you about? And so it's a very, um, it's a very diverse community of people with a lot of different interests. A lot of the, uh, ex a lot of the, uh, the artifacts that you have are mostly, I mean, at the time they were ephemera. They're not really meant to be preserved or, yeah. or thought of someday this will be in a museum. You know, I mean, we knew about the moon rocks and things, but, but just things like, you know what, uh, what Mike Collins's watch was like, and things like that. So, uh, trying to, trying to get out in front of this, are there is there anything you're doing proactively on future curation of like items from the space station, or uh, you know things that are being <laughs> used right now that you try to get up ahead and say, by the way, when you when you when you're done with this, could you put it in a box and all don't the touch time. It? All the time. In fact, I was just having that conversation this morning. We have a new staff member who's helping us with our project management of the renovation project at the museum. And he happened to be a former NASA employee in the International Space Station program. And I is an engineer who had worked on a bunch of different projects and I'm a curator of a gallery. Now my collections research area tends to be much more pre-shuttle, but um, I curate a gallery that focuses on uh, space shuttle, space station and beyond. And so that's exactly the problem I'm trying to tackle now, which is what objects do I want to start focusing on to make sure that we can tell a space station story, even though the space station is still flying. So what are the things I want to see us talk about? And so we were talking to this employee about you know who does he know how might might re we reach out to these people because it seems inherent that what they're it seems inherent to us that he, they're doing historical activities things that will be historical um that are 
important to tell the public about, but that's not necessarily uh, obvious to them as they work. So we want to make better relationships. We want to create relationships and contacts and, and develop those kinds of um, situations so that we can then later say, when you're done with that, we would love to be able to collect it and put it on display to preserve the history. Um, NASA is not the best at telling its own story, but we can help facilitate that in certain ways. And so through objects is, is certainly the focus of this museum and, and being able to collect those things, put them on display and tell a story or explain how they were used or show how they were used is something that we want to do more in the future. And the space station is a huge part of that. So it's really about doing things a little differently than we have in the past, which is really looking backwards. We have to kind of look at the here and now and develop those relationships now so that SpaceX, Blue Origin, Sierra Nevada, whoever else is working in the space industry for the next couple of decades um, can be represented in the stories that we tell. And to tell them, we really have to have objects to do that. Yeah, I, I was thinking that it, probably since the uh, space station was first constructed that, that you folks have been probably saying, we got dibs on the bell, please, can we have the first <laughs> There are lots of things I would love. You know, it, we, we used to talk about what happened if Hubble was brought back, if there were ever a mission to just bring Hubble, go up with a shuttle and bring it back somehow as opposed to deorbiting it and having it burn up somewhere. Um you know, that would have been the ultimate museum piece, I think, because Hubble is a really big part of the story we tell here because we're close to the Goddard Space Flight Center where all that research happens. And so, yeah, we have these sort of fantasies about, you know, what happens if um, somebody could go to the moon and, you know, collect samples of materials that were left on the moon by the astronauts. Um, but in reality, that's beyond unlikely. Um so we can, but we can still tell all those stories through the kinds of things that we did get back. And that's one of the fun things I get to do all the time is I can tell the stories of any of these crews based on the materials returned. Um, we often tell the story of Apollo 13 through the mock-up that was given to us by NASA of the solution that came about to solve their carbon dioxide problem. Um, so we have a replica of that in the museum collection. And so we can kind of relate you know, relate that story in some way. Um, space food's a great example. I love to talk about, you know, the amount of coffee consumed on board um, space missions in this era because of how much was actually brought back. So if there's not much coffee from a mission, I know they had a lot of coffee during the mission. Um, it's kind of a, a sliding scale that you can look at. You know, if they brought a lot of food back, they probably didn't need a lot of food on their mission. And so, and there's records to be able to kind of track all that. So, the objects are really the objects that return are a really interesting way to be able to tell these stories. Wow, um, uh, this is we really have to continue this conversation. Um, if if we could have you back on a future episode, this would be great. And uh, maybe we could also talk about Apollo thirteen on the, next, <laughs> the next go round. But happy uh, to, happy to. There's lots to talk about with this movie, and um, you know, it it definitely relates to kind of everything that um, my job is all about. Okay, well, fantastic. Where, um, if people are looking for you online, where's what would you say would be uh, uh, the Smithsonian's best uh, resource for for re reading about uh, uh, both the Air and Space Museum and Adrahazi? Um, well, the museum's website is the perfect way to do that. It's air, air and space at, at si for Smithsonian Institution dot edu. 
And on there, you can find my profile uh, on the staff pages, and you can find pages about some of the exhibitions that I've worked on. Um, my favorite, if anybody's interested, happens to be an exhibition I did a few years ago called Outside the Spacecraft, which was about the 50th anniversary of spacewalking. And um, we have some really cool little elements on there. It was a really fun exhibit to work on, and we kind of preserve it through the online experience at this point. But um, encourage everybody to go there. You can plan your visit online, um, take a look at the artifacts that are in our collection, the ones that are and are not on display. Um, and the Smithsonian generally um, has a great website that you can then link to all the other museums from if you're interested in other topics. Very cool. Well, great. Well, Jennifer, thanks again for being on, and we'll, we'll talk to you again very soon. For folks uh, interested in listening to other episodes of, of our little podcast here, uh, join us always at Apollo13minute.com. You can find us on Twitter at uh, Apollo13minute. Find us on Facebook at uh, Apollo13minute Mission Control. And, uh, of course, uh, iTunes and Google Play or wherever you find the podcasts are sold or given away. We will be back uh, tomorrow to finish up this week as we... Uh, watch uh, more uh, moving of giant pieces of equipment in the background of the VAV. But it uh, looks like uh, we're going to have uh, lost the signal here in 30 seconds. Uh, join us here tomorrow on the Apollo 13 Minute.